met here this morning for the purpose of worship, and certainly worship consists of a lot of things, not the least of which is prayer. So we shall begin this morning with with silent prayer, and I would ask that you would lay it on the Lord, if you will, for our country and the things that you think should happen, and understand that fully well your prayer will be transformed and made perfect by God the Holy Spirit, and delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ to the Father who will provide a perfect answer to that prayer. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Tommy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, by way of announcements, uh, we're going to have prayer meeting at 6.30 on Wednesday, and at 7 o'clock we'll have our Bible study. I uh, had one other comment about prayer. We do have our prayer list over here to my left. Feel free to get you a copy and use it. And I, of course, had my daughter and my grandson uh, with us for Christmas, and I was showing her our prayer list. And she said, I didn't know you could pray for your enemies. And she said, you pray for those people? And I said, of course. I said, the Bible says pray for your enemies. I said, with the understanding, you're going to pray for them. And God's going to do the right thing. You don't want him doing what I want done to them, you know. But the point being, he'll 
he'll see to it that uh, he'll take care of everything. So keep that in mind. Pray for whomever you want and understand your prayers, as the Scripture says, are probably not correct. Uh, but uh, we have the wonderful grace ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and and the Lord Jesus Christ to take care of that matter for us. All right, so 6.30, prayer meeting in the book of John. We'll get into a Bible study at 7 o'clock, continuing that study. Now, with reference to another aspect of worship called giving, and it is an act of worship, and I'm not going to leave it out. I know my brother used to go to various churches, and he'd come back. He said, Jerry, they just beat you to death for money. And uh, then he said... Uh, so I always tell the lady I'm with uh, that you wait till you hear my brother teach about giving. He teaches what the New Testament has to say. And I hope that I'll always do that. And the New Testament very clearly, as you can see from the chart, says that if, again, uh, if there's a willingness, that's the important thing. So we'll have a moment of silent prayer. And if you want to give, but maybe you haven't been blessed, so you have nothing to give. You can still give because you want it to. And then that other scripture there in 2 Corinthians 9, 7 gives us another command that in the event God has blessed you, uh, you uh, are not to give unless you can do it without attachment. In other words, he loves a cheerful giver. And that's the important thing. So you keep it to yourself if you can't be a cheerful giver. So that's basically the New Testament teachings about giving. Now then, let's uh, go to our music. We're blessed today to have Joshua, who's going to sing Lily of the Valley. To wit, we have the lily up here. And uh, by the way, this is the judge's favorite song. So the next time you see the judge, you tell him, we missed you. Give them the old Baptist, you know, we missed you, you know, but uh, Joshua, if you would, please. Jesus, he's everything to me. He's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. The lily of the valley, in him alone I see all I need to cleanse and make me fully whole. In sorrow, he's my comfort, in trouble, he's my stay. He tells me every care on him to roll. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. He all my griefs has taken and all my sorrows borne. In temptation he's my strong and mighty tower. I have all for him forsaken, and all my idols torn. 
from my heart, and now he keeps me by his power. Though all the world forsake me, and Satan tempt me sore, through Jesus I shall safely reach the goal. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. He will never, never leave me, nor yet forsake me here, while I live by faith and do his blessed will. A wall of fire about me, I've nothing now to fear. With his manna he my hungry soul shall fill. Then sweeping up to glory to see his blessed face, where rivers of delight shall ever roll. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. All right, last week I taught in part the doctrine of dispensations, and we're approaching the end of that particular doctrine. They're all on the internet, however, and they're also on the podcast. So feel free to uh, uh, take a look at those as the case may be. All right, before we begin, however, we're going now to the end, really, of the doctrine itself, though I'm not here to testify to the fact that I will finish the doctrine of dispensations, but we're in part five, and uh, <clears throat> we're going to look at the doctrine of the New Jerusalem today. Uh, but again, as is our custom, let's use First John 1, 9, as may or may not be necessary. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to live in this great country of ours. And now I would ask that you would help us to study to show ourselves approved unto you, workmen who need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, I have a couple of charts on your in your lesson plan that I think were appropriate. We put the dispensation chart up several times, so I'll not do that again. But I wanted to provide what Israel expected. This is not a new chart for you. I know you've seen it before, but uh, they expected, of course, uh, an age of the Gentiles when there were no such thing as Jews. And uh, they would... Of course, believe in the creation of man by God, the fall of Adam in the garden, the flood, the selection of Avram, who later became Abraham, etc. Then they also anticipated an age that I like to call the age of Israel proper, uh, where we find Moses and we find the Exodus story, etc. And then they also believed in the kingdom age when the Lord Jesus Christ would come back and he would live on planet earth and he would go to the cross, and then he would set up his kingdom. 
And some might say, well, you mean they actually believed he was going to go to the cross? Uh, a dedicated Jew believed that, right. Why? Because Isaiah told him about it. So I'm assuming every dedicated Jew certainly knew about the book of Isaiah, where it clearly describes him as the one who went to the cross and was taken, took care of all the sins of the world. So uh, then you'd have the kingdom, 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 kingdom. But what really did happen, I've shown you there, I called what Israel got. And what they got was, of course, they had their age, and then they had Christ come in the kingdom age. He offered his kingdom to Israel. Israel rejected his kingdom, so God took his kingdom up to heaven and has not provided the kingdom to them, but instead provided the church age. Then you see the, the tribulation right there in front of the millennium. And then the millennium, uh, where he will, in, that, in essence, provide the four unconditional covenants to Israel. So what Israel expected, you've got a chart. What Israel got, you've got a chart. Now let's continue our review. It says, although the millennium is often correctly described as a political rule, it will also be a time of abundant spiritual blessing. Isaiah 49 verse 22 says, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon to the Gentiles. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. And then Jeremiah 31 17. At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. And then Jeremiah 16, 9, O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in time of distress, to you the nations will come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers possess nothing but false gods, worthless, worthless idols, and did them no good. And then, of course, the announcement of the new covenant, what would happen in the kingdom itself, in this case, the millennium, since we know of the events which did transpire, as we saw, uh, where they will keep the law and they will show the rest of the world uh, how to be perfect. And all of that, because God's going to make sure they do. And when asked about that, why did you select Israel and why will you do this for them? The new covenant. Give them the new covenant. He said, because I said I would. I like that answer. I'm going to read you now, again, Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. It's also repeated, by the way, in the book of Hebrews. It says, this is a covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, describes the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor. Or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. Although there is no evidence that the Holy Spirit will baptize believers into a spiritual unity as we see in the church age, there is will be the indwelling power and presence of the Lord in the believer in the millennium. And we notice that in several verses. I'm going to read Isaiah 32, 15. Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, 
and the wilderness be a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be counted for a harvest. And then Isaiah goes on to say, For I will pour my water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. And then Ezekiel thirty nine twenty nine. Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. And then uh, Joel, in chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, two verses, by the way, which were misinterpreted by Peter, who didn't understand that there would be, in fact, a, a church age and then a tribulation, and then Joel, he indicates that this is what Joel meant when he said, and he saw them speaking in tongues. Let's just look up and Christ will come right back here in Jerusalem. And we'll be able then to have our kingdom. But he had to learn that later after he got the indwelling of the Spirit. The teaching ministry of the Spirit. And a number of years to progress in maturity. Just like we do when we first started out. Chances are, unless you were very unusual, you didn't know a whole lot about the Scripture. You had to learn. So I'm going to read you about Joel now. Joel chapter 2 verse 28 and 29. And I shall come to pass afterward, or it shall come to pass afterward, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, <clears throat> and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. So certainly when the Lord returns, it will be a time of righteousness, prosperity, and universal peace. Uh, Several places tell us about that. Psalm 72, verse 7, for example. In his days, the righteous will flourish. Prosperity will abound till the moon is no more. And then verse 4 in Isaiah chapter 2. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. And, of course, that is not a promise for today, as some of our congressmen think and have stated that this is what Isaiah meant. We need to have disarmament. Nothing could be further from the truth. And I refer you to our doctrine of war, which you can certainly look up on the Internet, or even maybe we'll have it up on the podcast one of these days. All right, then Isaiah 12, verse 3 and 4. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known among the nations what He has done, and proclaim that His name is exalted. And then, of course, a rather famous verse, because the Lord quoted it when He was at Nazareth, at least in part, as He read from the Holy Scriptures there. Isaiah 61, 1, 2, and 3 says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, 
a planning of the Lord for the display of his splendor. All right, as a center of worship in the millennium, you'll have a millennial temple. And it will be built. It is described in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 46. It's not as big as the other temple, that is to say, any of them actually. Uh, but there will again be sacrifices in that temple. They will be looking back at what happened as opposed to looking at what is coming in the future. Uh, as we have studied, of course, when I put the dispensation chart on there and show you how some people look back at Jesus, some people look at Jesus, some people look forward to Jesus' coming. But it's always faith alone in Christ alone, the only way of salvation, regardless of which dispensation one lives in. All right, I did find uh, a interesting uh, finding announced uh, on the Internet, and uh, Morgan and I were talking about it, uh, where they said they actually found uh, Melchizedek's temple. And, of course, uh, after Morgan and I talked about it, and I read it, it uh, is not a temple. They just call it a temple. It looks more like a little small area where maybe Melchizedek worshipped. But uh, Melchizedek, you'll remember, is in the book of Hebrews. We studied the book of Hebrews many, many years ago. And uh, I noticed that I had neglected to put a doctrine of the temple on our website. Well, I've remedied that this week. Uh, and it uh, is on there. In fact, it's even featured on the home page as well as under Pastor Mary's study books. And it was very interesting for me to review again about the temple. But it is there. So uh, Ezekiel mentions the fact uh, as a memorial looking back uh, to the cross. But by way of temple, since we're here briefly, you may remember there in the Bible you have five temples mentioned. Uh, and of course one of them, uh, if, you, if, you, if you follow along, you'll say, well I only count four. Well that's because I'm cheating a little bit because one of them is your body. So that's the fifth temple Paul makes it clear, your body is the temple of God. So I go ahead and count it as a temple. But way back when, of course, 960 B.C., we had Solomon's temple built. It was huge. And David wanted to build it. You remember, God said, no, you can't build it, David. You have too much blood on your hands. You are warrior supreme. But I will let your son do it. So he acquired all the materials to build the temple and assigned the duty to his son Solomon to build the temple, and that he did. But then again, it was destroyed in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar and his armies, uh, as was the city itself. And then uh, the, you have what is called Nehemiah's temple. And I think that's a, strictly a, a misnomer to call it Nehemiah's temple. It it's not called that necessarily in Scripture, but... People like to call it Nehemiah's temple for some reason, and I know that reason because Nehemiah came back and brought Israel from Babylonia and used that temple. But the guy who's more responsible for it than anybody, you could actually say two people, Zerubbabel, and I would call it Zerubbabel's temple since he was the political leader when that temple was built. And it was completed in 516. And, of course, the priest was Joshua at that particular point in time. Uh, who serves a rubble. And that's the, the, the second temple. It was not as big as the first one. You, you remember the Cyrus told him to go back and rebuild the city and Artaxerxes 
of course, was also involved in a command uh, to, in fact, uh, rebuild. And they started in 520. And uh, then you had to have two prophets come along to urge them, complete the temple, complete the temple. They actually fit, completed the altar. And that was good enough for them. Then they could worship. And uh, that they did, did, began worshiping. And so the two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, were raised up to urge them to finish that temple. Well, they finally did in 516 B.C. And then there was another temple, which was Herod's temple. It's difficult to say exactly when uh, did he complete that te- his temple. Uh, but, of course, that's the one that Jesus walked in. And now they say they found the floor of that temple on the Internet. And you have to be careful what the Internet tells you. But uh, it may very well be accurate. And that's the one that Jesus walked in, Herod's temple. Now, he just actually added to Zerubbabel's temple to make it bigger. Bigger because he wanted to please the Jew. Uh, so that became what is known as Herod's temple. And then the temple I just mentioned, which is, uh, of course, uh, the Millennial Temple. So I give you that as an aside with an urging to go to the Internet and read all about the temple. Uh, it is on, again, as I said, not only the Pastor Mary study books, but also on the uh, home page. All right, now let's go ahead and uh, turn the page, if you will, and go to Isaiah 35, 1 and 2. Where we're going to look at the groaning and travail of creation will be lifted. There will be prosperity, health, and both physical and spiritual blessings such as the world has never known or ever known. Excuse me. All right, here we go. Isaiah 35, 1 and 2. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. And then Isaiah 35, 7, the burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the hands where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyri will grow. And then in verses, well, verse 23 of Isaiah 30, he will also send you rain for the seed you sow on the ground and the food that comes from the land. He will, will be rich and plentiful. In that day your cattle will graze in broad meadows. There will be important changes in the topography of the earth during the millennial. Alright, the promised land will again be the garden spot of the world. It will be the center of God's kingdom on earth and a place of unusual blessing. The millennium will be a golden age, the climax of earth's history and the fulfillment of God's purpose to establish his son as a supreme ruler over the universe. For example, Isaiah 45, 3, 45, 23, excuse me, so proclaims, I have sworn by myself the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and will not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue will swear. And then Romans 14.11, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So those who are overcomers will receive special rewards in Christ's kingdom. And I'm going to read you a few of these. First of all, let's look at 1 John 4, 5, 4, and 5, 5. Because there are so many promises in the book of the Revelation that says if you 
that will do this or for those who do that or etc. Uh, they're called overcomers. Uh, and a lot of people look at that and say, oh, golly, I hope I'm an overcomer. Well, you have to go to, again, First John 5, 5, actually. We're going to read 5, 4 and 5, 5. It tells you who is an overcomer. In other words, uh, uh, people that hope to be an overcomer have to know, how do I become an overcomer? Well, I'm going to tell you how you become an overcomer. Because certainly it's right there in front of you. First John 5, 4 and 5, 5. I'll read. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Now notice verse 5. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Alright, now I'm going to read you a few verses that caused the problem for some people in the book of the Revelation. And I'm going to hurry through these, so I'll just read them rather rapidly. Alright, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give eat, to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Revelation 2.7 Then he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Revelation 2.11 And then he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, means approved. When you went to poor judge, if you got a white stone, you won the case. If you got a black stone, you usually went to your death. And the, in the stone, a new name written. Now, a good song there, Joshua. There's a new name written down in, you know, glory. Alright, I'll hush. Alright, we leave that to Joshua. So which no man knoweth, saying he that receiveth it. Alright, and then Revelation 2.26, And he that overcometh, that keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. See, that tells you everybody's name is in the book of life when you're born. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Revelation 3.5, Now then, him that overcometh, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my house, excuse me, in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne. So at the end of the tribulation, a judgment will take place to determine which of the survivors of that great and terrible day of the Lord will enter the millennium. All right, now let's look at Matthew 25, 31, 32, 33, and 34. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The king prepared for you since the creation of the world. All right, the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah of Israel and King of kings will rule over the entire earth in his millennial reign. 
Zechariah makes that clear in his ninth verse, the 14th chapter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. Now included in the topographical changes will be the elevation of Jerusalem. They are, of course, provided for us. In, but in Zechariah 14.10, he tells us about that in part. The whole land from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah. The Arabah was a level area and a desert area uh, that led right on down to the Persian Gulf. But Jerusalem will be raised up and remain in its place from the Benjamin Gate to the side of the first gate, to the corner gate from the Tower of Hananel, all the way to the royal wine presses. So Jerusalem will be secure and never be destroyed again. And that, of course, is a, a wonderful promise that they will not be destroyed again. All right, an indication of the rule of Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords is that he will judge the nations that fought against Jerusalem in the tribulation. Zechariah fourteen twelve and 13, this is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations. All the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, men will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. Each man will seize the hand of another and they will attack each other. So a plague will seize man and beast alike. Israel will acquire great quantities of gold, silver, and clothing. Notice Zechariah 14, 14. Judah too will fight at Jerusalem. Not only Israel, but also Judah. The two of the, the two kingdoms, you remember, were divided to Rehoboam and Jeroboam at the death of Solomon. Uh, and they both will fight. The wealth of the surrounding nations will be collected. Great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. So those who survive the purging judgments at the beginning of the millennium will be required to worship Christ annually. In other words, going into the millennium, you'll remember, will be only believers, but then there'll be children who will be born to these believers. And some will believe and some won't. But they will be permitted to live in the millennium so long as they don't cause severe problems. Now, if they cause problem enough to... to, to um, ruin perfect environment, then again, God will take them out via capital punishment. And as I mentioned last week, and most people don't think about this, but uh, in the millennium, it's perfect environment. So when you think about perfect environment, certainly the scriptures tell us over and over again things that we should do and should have in our land. But if we want perfect environment, read what happens in the millennium. And there will be capital punishment a tool for a perfect environment. All right, notice Zechariah 14, 16. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go out year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if you don't go to the Feast of the Tabernacles, let's say you're Egypt and you don't send your people up there to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles, you won't have any rain and your crops will fail. So God is... Uh, Motivating people, I guess you could say. Alright, God will withhold rain from those nations that do not send delegations to Jerusalem when the Feast of Tabernacles is celebrated. Notice with me verse 
17, 18, and 19 of Zechariah 14. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague He inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feasts of Tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate that feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. All right, there will be a time when the holiness of God is uniquely revealed. It will be by grace and not by things that you do. You know the Jews make a big deal about today, keeping the law. And the law says that when you have a dish, you know, that's had a certain food product in it, you can't take another dish, or you have to take another dish. You can't use that dish again. All sorts of legalistic things go on, you know, and uh, sad say. But uh, uh, let me read, if you will. Uh, about the holiness that pervades during the millennial reign of Christ. Zechariah 14, 20 and 21, On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord Almighty and all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. And you remember who the Canaanites were. Have you a chart that shows all of the Canaanites? And that kind of relates to uh, the story that uh, being told on the internet that they found the temple of Melchizedek. Well, all of you know who Melchizedek is or was, if you will. Or, there are actually three theories about who was Melchizedek. I'll just hit them hard right now. Uh, and uh, some people say it was Christ. That used to be a Baptist thing. Well, who was Melchizedek? Oh, that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's not true. Uh, and then, of course, uh, some people will say, well, he was uh, um, he, he was an, a Jebusite that became a believer. And uh, I kind of doubt that one because when David took the year of Salim, the city where Melchizedek lived, he was the Gentile king, he, by the way, was a Jebusite who worshipped Zek. And uh, David went in there and took it by force. So that would be hard to believe. If he had been a believer, he wouldn't have opened the doors and let David in. But David had to take it by force. But Ur of Salim is the city of peace. And it is a city where Melchizedek lived. And then we have in uh, the, the story, of course, when Avram went and rescued his son Lot and his family. And they came and stopped out in front of the uh, Abraham, uh, who was uh, at that time stopped in front of the city of Ur of Salim, where Melchizedek lived. And he, again, was a Jebusite. And a Jebusite was a break-off, if you will, from the Amorites. And they worshipped false gods. And uh, But this guy, who was a Gentile, Melchizedek, came out and gave tithes to... Uh, uh, Abraham and uh, and Abraham said no 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 you don't give tithes to me gave him his tithes back he said we're going to reverse the matter because you are a king like my Christ will be when my Christ comes back so you are a king by victory Ur of Salim Ur is the name for city in the Hebrew Salim is the city of peace 
So he had actually attacked that city and conquered it. Now you remember David had his first kingdom where David set up shop in Hebron. Then he decided, I want to go to Jerusalem because the Lord told him, go take that city. Well, he went and attacked it and took it. So that's all you're going to get on the doctrine of, if you will, uh, Melchizedek. Because there's quite a bit in the book of Hebrews about it. So anyway, that's all I'm going to tell you about that. Alright, now let's move on. Where will the church age believers live when the Lord returns? The answer obviously is in the new Jerusalem. Alright, now let's talk a little bit about a new heaven and earth because uh, you'll recall that the earth is destroyed and you have the great white throne and people appear before the great white throne and the judge there is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will not evaluate anybody for their sins because all sins have been taken care of on the cross. And uh, he will, however, look at these folks who come. They're all unbelievers. They come from every age, every unbeliever who's ever been in a, you know, alive, which, of course, is all unbelievers from all ages. They come and they present the good things that they did to make themselves right with God. You know, sound like a rededication ceremony in a big Methodist church, doesn't it? But the point is... They came and stood before him and he looked at all their good works and said it's not good enough. And they are cast into everlasting punishment. So that's the doctrine, of course, of the judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne. Alright, now let's go ahead with a new heaven and earth, which is what takes place next after the great white throne. And the new Jerusalem just moves over into the new heaven and the new earth, which we shall see. So let's, let me give you a point or two about that. First of all, point one, conservative scholars, theological conservative scholars agree the New Jerusalem described in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, that would be chapter 21 and chapter 21 that describe the uh, New Jerusalem, is also the same New Jerusalem in which church age saints will live, a city located above planet earth during the millennium. The earth and heaven of the millennium, recall, flees away, but not the new Jerusalem. It remains. The Bible has a permanent home, or excuse me, the bride, the Lord Jesus Christ, has a permanent home, not made with hands, uh, which does not fade away. The church, the bride, and Christ, the groom. All right, Ryrie in his book, Charles Ryrie, uh, it's in, the book is entitled Revelation, Every Man's Commentary has perhaps said it best. In other words, the New Jerusalem is the eternal residence of of the redeemed during both the millennium and eternity. It is the place our Lord has gone to prepare for us. John 14, 12. In other words, there seems to be two descents of the city, being the one related to eternity and one related to the millennium. Ryrie's distinction is no doubt, in my view, accurate. Like many of the conservative his... Conservative colleagues makes clear the cities are the same. I think the scripture supports the positions taken by Charles Ryrie and others, by the way, Theme, Schaefer, uh, Pentecost, Fruchtenbaum, etc. All right, now you have provided your chart and see how there was a new Jerusalem above the millennium where we'll live. Of course, it's uh, when we are raptured. And then there's the new Jerusalem and then the that, those little stars and everything's like a comic book, you know, bam, wham, crash, you know. And then that's the destruction of planet Earth. And then we have 
a new Jerusalem with a bit of a description about what you find on the walls, etc. Alright, so let's talk about our future home in the new Jerusalem. The city is described in Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through chapter 22 verse 5. The name New Jerusalem appears in Revelation 3.12 and Revelation 21.2. Let me read you 3.12 in the the NIV. Then later on I'm going to read you in the KJV. But it says, Him who overcomes, and again, compare 1 John 5.5 for a definition of he who overcomes. I will make a pillar in the house of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. All right. Revelation 21, 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. It was looked for by Abraham according to the anonymous writer of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11.10 For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He very often was uh, question was posited with him. Why don't you build yourself a city? You've got all these cattle, all these sheep, all these servants, all these warriors. Why don't you build yourself a beautiful city like other people have done? And he says, because I'm looking for my heavenly city. So he walked around looking for his heavenly city, whose builder is God. All right, it's referred to as Mount Zion and the city of the living God in Hebrews 12.22. Notice, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. And it's used, that is to say, the name is used metaphorically by Paul in Galatians 4.26, where he contrasts the law of Mount Sinai with, of course, grace, which he was teaching in the book of grace. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery, the present city, not the new Jerusalem, with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. Then verse 26 certainly indicates there is a new Jerusalem in heaven, even as we sit here today. It is ready for us. But our home there is being prepared by the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, it is also employed as an incentive by the Apostle John, again in Revelation 3.12, which I read for you in the NIV above. And I'm going to read for you now in the KJV. Him... That overcomes, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from God, and I will write upon him my new name. So the New Jerusalem viewed by John will one day be the habitation of Christ and his church during the millennium. The city is described first from the standpoint of the population. I'm going to do something kind of unusual here today. I'm going to read you Revelation 21, 2 through 7 as we read about the description of the holy city. And I'm going to read you in the KJV. I'm going to read you in the KJV. Then I'm going to read you in the NIV. Then I'm going to read you an expanded translation. So here we go. So here up. What better way to do it than the scripture itself? 
All right, and I saw John, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said again unto me, and it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the foundation of the water of life freely. He that overcometh, First John 5, 5 definition, remember, shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. Now let's see what happened after 1611 or so when the KJV was written in 1950s where it took a long period of time to provide the NIV. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. They will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new And then he said, write down, this is to John, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without, again, cost from the spring of the water of life. And he who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now for an expanded translation. That means that this is something I put together. So let's see how it goes with verse 2, reading through verse, again, 7. I was then given a panoramic view of the holy city. That's John speaking, of course. The new Jerusalem. It came down out of heaven. A gift from God to his family. The city was beyond description, like a gorgeous bride prepared for her right man, adorned in the finest attire, the quintessence of pulchritude. And I, John, heard a loud voice. The voice came from the area around the throne. Now the dwelling of God is with mankind, and I will live with them forever. They will be my people, and I will be with them, and will be their God. I will wipe every away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning, nor more nor crying, nor pain, for the old order of things is now gone. Christ, who was seated on the throne, said, I am now making all things new and different. He then said to John, Write what I am about to say. My words are trustworthy, faithful, and true. Christ then looked directly at me and said, It is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. To those who are thirsty, I will freely give them water to drink. From the spring of the water of life, they shall drink freely. The water represents the fulfillment of all the promises of Christ, which are now complete at that time of right. The person who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall inherit all things, and I will in the future be his God, and he shall be my son. All right, next we have a description of its material portions. It's actually a cube of all things, 1,500 miles each way. So I'm going to uh, just uh, flip over here now to the to the uh, expanded translation. And uh, I'm not sure you have it. If you don't have it, well, just listen. But uh, we'll have the expanded translation of verse 2110, uh, reading through, again, 2122, uh, if we get that far. We've got five minutes, so you can kind of relax, you know. I can read this in five minutes. All right, here we go. And I was taken away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain where he pointed out the holy city of Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. The city glowed, and the glory of God, its brilliance was like that of a single giant precious jewel, bright and clear like a transcendent prison. The new Jerusalem had a high wall, more than 200 feet. It had 12 gates and an angel set atop each gate. On the gates were written the, games of the, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel in the following pattern from the northwest corner going from the west to east. Levi, Judah, Reuben, Dan. From the southeast corner going from east to west. Naphtali, Asher, and Gad. And the southwest corner, from the southwest corner, going from the south to north, Simeon, Issachar, and Zebulun. There were three gates on each on the east side, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations stationed under each gate. And on each foundation were the names of the twelve original disciples, minus Judas Iscariot plus Paul. The seventh angel who took me away in the spirit had a measuring rod of gold with which he measured the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was cube-shaped. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 1,342 miles on all sides. He measured the wall of the city as being 216 feet high. The walls were made of a clear jasper stone cut out and polished to the grade of a perfect diamond. And the city itself was made of pure gold so that uh, so pure that it gave the appearance of glass. The foundation of the city were made of various precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third caledony, and the fourth emerald. The fifth sarnix, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh hyacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were each made of a giant single pearl. That's a big pearl. There was a special street which ran down the center of the seat, which street, which was made of pure gold, giving the appearance of transparent glass. I, John, looked but did not see a temple <clears throat> in the city. It was made clear to me that there was no need for a temple because the Father and the Son are its temple. And they are then and now omnipresent. 
The ritual had been replaced by the reality. All right, we still got uh, we still got uh, three minutes, but we're going to have now our our uh, invitation. So, if you would, your head bowed and your eyes closed, uh, as we're going to uh, seek to present the claims of Christ in the simplest of ways for anyone who may be without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life. Uh, it was clear uh, that uh, there was need because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. For well, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He came unto his own. His own was Israel. And his own Israel refused him. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name. So right where you are, whatever you might be doing, you can tell God the Father, and believing on God the Son and on the promise of the word, you will be saved. Just like the jailer who said, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Just like Christ said to John, when he said for all uh, all of us being sinners, he told him, Again, that all who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And that's a promise that is, was good then and it's good today. So I'm recommending that you do that as we have a moment of silence. And at the end of that moment of silence, I will offer our benediction. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and to to study Your Word. We're grateful for the wonderful Scriptures and promises of what's going to take place. We're grateful for the uh, methods that have been provided to us in this 21st century where we can get the Word out via all manner of communication techniques. So help us to be faithful to do just that and continue to guide and direct us in all that we do. For I would ask all these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen.